Let's come before God in prayer and ask for his help as we look at his word together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now and help us to meditate upon your word so that we do not sin against you or our neighbour. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we begin a new series on the book of Joel, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And Joel was an Israelite prophet in the Old Testament period. We're not quite sure when he gave his prophecy. There's different ideas about it, but basically we have very little information upon, about him except uh, for the details from the book and the opening verse there where we learn that he is the son of Pethuel. But what is Joel's prophecy about? What is he concerned about? Well, he's concerned about the total destruction of the land of Israel. What specifically, what total destruction is he concerned with? Well, it's a severe plague of locusts, a severe plague of locusts that had come in wave after wave of destruction, blow after blow. How do we see this? Well, it's given to us particularly in verse 4. In verse 4, where it says, What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten, and what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten, and what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Uh, here, it is hard to know exactly which locusts are which. Uh, this is a translator, uh, basically, but there's four different terms, four different names for these different types of locusts. It may be uh, generational, so there's the older locusts, and then there's their second generation, and it could be the really young locusts, or the fourth ones, or uh, another generation that's grown up. Uh, but basically, there's been plague after plague after plague after plague. Four lots of locusts have come through the land of Israel. And they've come like what? Like a powerful army. We see that in verse 6. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. And they've come with sharp teeth. It's expressed there, they have teeth like a lion. Teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. And why is that? Because they have just stripped every plant in the land, even taking the bark away from the trees. Verse 7, it says, It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees, this army of locusts has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. They've left nothing. And we see that all the produce, therefore, of the land has been taken away as well. We see that in verses 10 and 12. It says, The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the oil that you would get from, uh, from the olive tree, uh, it fails as well. And so therefore it goes on to say in verse 11, Despair you farmers, wail you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed, the vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. So the fruit trees are gone, as well as, of course, the wheat and the barley uh, that would be used for making bread. It has all been destroyed. It's not a case of you can say, if they have no bread, let them eat cake. If they have no bread, let them eat fruit. Everything has been destroyed by this army of locusts. We see a total destruction. And therefore, what do we see in Israel? Well, the joy of mankind is withered away. We see that at the end of verse 12, this prophecy from Joel where he says, surely the joy of mankind is withered away. It may be exaggeration for some of you to say that the joy of mankind is food. But for many of us, we do understand that there is much joy to be had in food, all different types of food, whether it be bread, whether it be fruit, whether it be drink that comes from plants. We find joy and satisfaction in food. But in the land of Israel, 
the joy of mankind was withered away as this army of locusts, or multiple armies of locusts, had come one after the other. And that's not the only time that God has sent blow after blow of destruction to the land of Israel. We see in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 21, where he says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, this is Ezekiel, not Joel, How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague, to kill its men and their animals? See that there's this fourfold judgment that God can send one after another upon the land of Israel. And it's prophesied here in Joel, prophesied about in Joel, but also in Ezekiel. There's one in Jeremiah as well. But we see repeated blows given by the Lord of destruction in one other great place in the Old Testament. Not four, but ten. And that is in the land of Egypt, where locusts were involved. There were ten plagues that God sent against the Egyptians for not letting his people go, for keeping them in slavery. And one of those included the locust plague. And in the present, the time now, we also know our own locust plagues. Not necessarily locusts themselves, but one blow after another in our lives and the lives of others. We can see a man lose his job and then lose his home and then lose his family and then lose his health. One blow after another coming to a man. My great-grandma, in World War I, she lost both her brothers. She only had two brothers. She also had a sister, lost both in World War I. Then she had three sons, and two of those sons were lost in World War II. One blow after another to a family. Brother gone, brother gone, son gone, son gone. We see this. We see it in a nation like ours, where we have bushfires, and then floods, and then a pandemic, and then a plague of mice coming through the country regions, one after another. I just visited Turkey, where they've had earthquake after earthquake, and we visited ruins that were ruins. Why? Because great earthquakes had happened thousands of years ago. A nation like that has experienced earthquake after earthquake after earthquake down through the centuries. And it won't be the only time that there's destruction is in our time, in the present day. We know that there's also a future destruction that is coming on the final day of the Lord with its own locust plague. And we saw that in Revelation chapter 9. Turn with me again there, Revelation chapter 9, which we heard read for us just before. It's on page 1,221, where the Apostle John is seeing the future and seeing the destruction that is coming. And we read in chapter 9, verse 3, page 1,221, chapter 9, verse 3, that out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. And we read the following verses, which gives more details about this locust plague. And if you want to understand more of what this locust plague precisely may be, you may want to go to the Friday night Bible study, where Ray is actually going to be looking at this in coming weeks, and you can talk more about that with him. But we see this destruction, blow after blow, coming in the future, in the book of Revelation. There's another instance of it in Revelation chapter 6. Turn with me a page back in Revelation 
to chapter 6, where we see the four horsemen that God sends. Look with me at Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, where we see a fourfold judgment again. We read the words of the Apostle John, where he says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Fourfold judgment that the Lord has prophesied about in the book of Revelation. And then, of course, we understand the destruction that comes to man after the final judgment. That wave after wave of destruction will come upon man. Where? In hell itself. Revelation tells us of a lake of burning fire, burning sulfur, where those in it will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It will be repeated blows from the Lord against those in hell. And so what do we ask? As we look at Joel chapter 1, as we look at Revelation, as we hear again about the plagues in Egypt, what do we ask in response of repeated blows of destruction, of pain and suffering that come from the Lord? Well, the question that we ask is why? Why? Why would God do this? If someone started punching us with sharp, repeated blows one after another, what would we want to ask? Why? Why are you punching me again and again and again? Not just once, but again and again. So why would suffering and pain come to Israel again and again and again? Why one locust plague, but then a second, then a third, then a fourth coming upon Israel? Why are people suffering day and night for eternity in hell? Why is God hitting us now and eternally? Well, it's because our sin has struck repeated blows on God. God has always warned us that if we strike him, he will strike us. If we strike him, he will strike us. God even warned about locusts coming as a result of people disobeying God's law. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Turn with me in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is page 197 of the Church Bibles. Deuteronomy 28, where we are given from Moses blessings that will come for obedience, but then there's also curses that are given for those who are disobedient. So look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. This is before the Israelites enter the promised land and they're given the law a second time by Moses. And attached to the law, of course, are the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Look with me at verse 15. Page 197, if you have a church Bible. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. 
where we read, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. God is very clear that he will curse those again and again if they sin against him. And it's even in verse 38 that we read of locusts. Verse 38, he was up front with the people of Israel before they entered the promised land, possibly hundreds of years before the prophet Joel. What do we read in verse 38? You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You'll have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. God had warned the Israelites many years before, before Joel, that if you disobey me, if you sin against me, I will bring curses upon you, including the curse of having locust plague come and destroy all your produce. And so the punishment fits the crime. How so? Well, just as we are total sinners, we should receive total destruction. Just as we repeatedly sin against God, we deserve repeated pain from God. Just as sin flows from our hearts like locust swarms, sin comes out again and again and again. So punishment flows from God like a locust swarm coming towards us because of our sin. In God's mercy, he may give us a locust-free life in some respect, and maybe especially from grasshoppers, we who live in the cities, we don't have to worry so much about them. And he may not give you as much pain as the next person, but we cannot act like we're superior to the next person because if our swarms of sin that we have committed against God are not removed, we will know a swarming pain in hell. So what can we do? What can we do in response to the total destruction that we see there in Israel? As we see it in the lives of ourselves or the lives of those around us, pain and suffering, as we see the prophecy given in Revelation that future pain is coming, what can we do? Can we do good works to make up for our sins so that the punishment of God will not come to us, so it will be taken away, so that we do not experience pain and suffering in this world and we do not experience pain and suffering in the next? Can't we make up for it? Can't we tip the scales No, we can't. Once we sin, once we deserve punishment for that sin. Crime equals punishment. We're supposed to be good always. If you do something wrong, you deserve to be punished for it. We see this with children, we see it with citizens. A child in my house does something wrong, they deserve to be punished. They can't say, oh, I'm such a good person the rest of the day, I don't deserve to be punished because all my good works that I've done for you, Dad, make up for the one thing I did that was wrong? No. And it's the same with us. If we rob someone's place, we can't say, well, I didn't rob people the other days of the week, so therefore I should be those good days make up for the bad day. No, it doesn't work that way. We're supposed to be good all the time. So when we do something wrong, when we are bad, we deserve to be punished. So what can we do in light of the destruction that we see here in Joel, in our lives, and in the book of Revelation. What can we do? Well, Joel tells us what we can do. 
And he'll tell us in forthcoming weeks as we continue to look at this passage of Scripture together. But look with me at verse 8. Verse 8 of Joel chapter 1, which is found on page 900 if you're uh, still in Revelation. Page 900, Joel chapter 1, what does he tell people to do? Mourn. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the land. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. Mourn. Mourn like a young woman who's lost her husband. She's expecting a honeymoon, but instead she's got a dead husband and is going to a funeral. Mourn like a priest who has nothing to offer the Lord because everything has been destroyed. He can't do his job. Mourn before the Lord. Why lament to God? Why mourn before God? What would be the purpose of doing this? Well, it's because God has promised that if people come to him and mourn over their sin, mourn over the destruction that they have for their sin, but mourn over their sin and what they have done, then he will heal them by the Spirit and forgive them. Where do we see this in Scripture? Well, we see it in many places. We'll see it in the book of Joel in different ways. But when it comes to locusts, God had made a promise about this back in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, page 431. We're jumping around a lot in the Bible today, but I think it's helpful for us to see all these references to locusts and the destruction that was to come from them that is clearly there in, in Joel, but also in other parts of Scripture. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, page 431, 431. The context here is that Solomon, the King Solomon, he has built the first temple of the Lord. He has dedicated the temple. He has prayed concerning this temple, a very long prayer, which you may like to read this afternoon in chapter 6. And then we hear God's response to Solomon's prayer, the response to the dedication that comes at the temple. And we read that in verse 11 and following. Second Chronicles chapter 7, reading from verse 11, page 431 if you have a church Bible. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord in the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Very clear teaching from God himself to Solomon, that in the face of total destruction, in the face of pain and suffering, if people will humble themselves, if they will lament and mourn, and pray to God and seek his face and turn, repent, that's what it means to repent, is to turn from wicked ways, then God will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. But how can God do that as a just God? Didn't we say that justice equals punishment? Uh, justice equals uh, repeated sin equals punishment. That's what justice is. If someone sins, then they deserve punishment. If someone sins repeatedly, then they deserve repeated punishment. How can God be a just God and just let things go. If people mourn over their sin, lament over it, pray to him and ask for forgiveness, how can he just let it go? Well, people can receive mercy from God, a just God, because the punishment of the Son of God fits the crime. 
the punishment of the Son of God fits the crime as well. Many years ago, all our swarming sin of those who believe in Jesus, all our swarming sin that comes like plagues of locusts streaming out of our hearts, it was placed on Jesus. And he was struck repeatedly by God. It was the Lord Jesus who was struck again and again with God's destruction. We actually talk about the Lord Jesus' state of humiliation. It's a state of exaltation and a state of humiliation. We look at actually four aspects, fourfold aspect of the state of humiliation of the Lord Jesus. We talk about his humiliation in his incarnation, in becoming a man. If you think about it, the Son of God becoming man, that is a humiliating event in the life of the Lord Jesus. We also talk about his suffering, the life of suffering that he lived on this earth, but also, of course, leading up to the cross. But we also talk of his state of humiliation, the aspect of it is his death, the fact that he died. And then the fourth one is his burial, the humiliation of the Son of God being buried in the ground. A few Easter's ago, I spoke about that on a Good Friday service, about the humiliation. We looked at it very carefully, what it means to be buried, what we do with things, when we, and what, what sort of things we bury in the ground. And that's what happened to the Lord Jesus. He was humiliated. He became man, he suffered, he died and was buried. What the locust left in his incarnation, other locusts devoured in his suffering. What was left was eaten in his death. And what was left after his death was buried. The corpse of the Lord Jesus Christ was buried and humiliated there. And why did that happen? Why did it happen? It was for the sins of his people. He was struck again and again in his incarnation, his suffering, his death, his burial, in response of God because of our sins. It truly happened that day where he suffered and died and was buried, where the joy of mankind was withered away. That's what we saw in verse 12 of Joel chapter 1. It says the joy of mankind was withered away, in reference to food. But what is the true joy of mankind? The Lord Jesus himself, the Son of God. He brought so much joy to so many people, but there at the cross he was withered away. And it was why? It was for our sins. So the destruction that we who believe deserve is felt already by the Lord Jesus Christ, has been paid in full. Now that's not to suggest that if you become a Christian, you won't feel repeated pain and destruction in your life, in this world. Hebrews 12 reminds us that God disciplines those he loves. He brings pain and suffering into our lives so that we will continue the sanctification process that he has begun of repentance in our lives. But the big swarms of pain that all man is facing in hell are already removed in Christ Jesus. He has suffered, he has died and been buried on our behalf so that we do not have to experience them because we've already experienced them by faith in Christ Jesus. So have you experienced repeated blows of pain from God? Or have you seen others experience pain? Your life may be pretty pain-free, but have you seen others experience pain and suffering? Have you accepted that all pain and all suffering is ultimately due to our repeated strikes against God, that God is striking us as we have struck him. Have you mourned like a bride 
or repented and repented of your sins by the power of the Spirit? Have you mourned over the destruction that you deserve for your sin and mourned over your sin itself and how awful it is? If the answer is no, how many more blows does God need to give you? Does God need to give you before you repent? How many locust plagues does he need to send into your life before you will repent? Or are you going to be like Pharaoh, suffering 10 devastating plagues, even the death of his own son? And he still did not repent. He still did not repent and acknowledge God as he should have. How much pain do you need to see others suffer to bring you to your repent? We live in a very blessed country. I've realised that as I've travelled parts of the world, even just gotten back, and i realise there's no place like home, particularly when it's Australia. It's a lovely country we're in. And why is that? Because much of the pain and suffering that the world experiences, we do not have to suffer here. But as we look around the world, do we see the pain and the suffering and realise that that's meant to be a warning to us meant to be a warning to us that one day we will suffer pain and great suffering for the rest of eternity. We're meant to be like children who see a father spanking a sibling and realise what? We're next if we don't mend our ways. As we look at the sibling getting punished, we're meant to go, oh, I've done that too. I'd better make sure I get right with Dad now before that happens to me. And that's what we're meant to do as we look around the world and see the pain and suffering that we may not be experiencing. We're meant to say, that's a wake-up call for me. As I look at Joel and see the locust plague after locust plague, locust plague, that's meant to be me too. I'm not somehow superior. I'm also a sinner. I'm meant to wake up and repent before it is too late. And so won't you trust that the blows laid on Christ so many years ago were laid on him for you. It's so wonderful that God extends his mercy to us through his son, that he struck his son again and again, despite the fact his son had never done anything wrong. But he offers that if you will trust in him, he has struck his son on your behalf so that you one day will never experience the blows you deserve in hell for all eternity. But if you have repented of your sins, what is your response as you look at Joel chapter 1 and you see the devastation? Well, it's to thank God and rejoice in the Spirit with other believers that it's now well with our souls. It is well with our souls. Why? Because the pain pictured in Joel and Revelation is not going to happen to us in the next life. It is not going to happen to us. Spafford's hymn captures the joyful reason so well why it's not going to happen. And we can sing it with joy, this hymn that we're about to sing. Look with me at verse 3 in your bulletins of the fourth song this morning. It is well. Look with me at verse 3. It gives us the wonderful reason why we should rejoice and why we have escaped the suffering that we deserve. It says, My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Normally when we think of sin, it's not a glorious thought. But why is it a glorious thought? My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
O my soul, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. So let's thank the Lord. Let's come before him in prayer and thank him that the swarms of sin that have come out of our hearts have felt the swarms of God's punishment at the cross so many years ago in Christ for us who believe. Let's come before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God of justice. Your punishment always fits the crime. Even terrible locust swarms that come upon people living in a land. All loss, all pain and suffering. It's all in keeping with your justice. Because we, starting from Adam and Eve, down through the centuries, we have not treated you as we should. We have struck you again and again and disobeyed your ways. And so your punishment always fits our crime. But Lord, we also praise you as the God of mercy. For you struck your son repeatedly with destruction so that those who believe would be forgiven for our sin. And so, Lord, we thank you for granting us mercy, granting mercy to many of us in this room that we have lamented over our sin. And then we have trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Lord, we ask that you would help us to rejoice now and every day in our salvation, that although our sins are many, your mercy is more. And, Lord, if there is anyone here who hasn't listened to your warnings of suffering and pain, in their lives and in the lives of others in past history or even present day, and a lot listening to the warnings given in the book of Revelation. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would grant them faith now. Grant them faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and his sufferings, so that they are saved. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.